Hi. We're really enjoying these fun, listener-created versions of our opening. But just to make sure that we've covered our butts, please also listen to the more serious version of our disclaimer message that's at the very end of this podcast. We really don't want to get sued. Thanks. Good crowd, good crowd. Hey, the members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are appearing as private individuals. <laughs> yeah, their comments don't necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. <laughs> also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and... Fly that aircraft! Down by the river. Oh my god, if you're singing now too. I shot my baby. <laughs> Down uh, by the river. Get David on the line here. Come together right now. <laughs> Over me. Alright, yeah, and we'll see whether or not Amy is singing as well. <laughs> Amy, are you there? Yes, sir. <laughs> They're singing, Amy. Help me. They're singing. Help, help. Oh, make sorry. it stop. <laughs> help. He needs somebody. All right. I, I, I started that. I just want you to know. You did? What'd you do? <laughs> you, all right, Dave. You don't read, you don't read your own text, man. Gee, many Christmas. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess I better. I'll catch up while you guys are talking. Um, I, I I have to confess right here and now. All right. It's cold here in California. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It Wait was a like, minute. Hang on. Hang on. Violin time. It, it was. Yeah. Right. There was there was frost on the cars this morning. I mean, it was below freezing. This is this is like a big deal here. They're all yelling at me. I went to Florida a month ago. I brought the cold there. Now I came to California. I brought the cold here. Well, we could use a cold snap, but... Well, I'm coming there next, so we'll see what happens, but... Uh, it should be interesting. It's a little chilly down here. So, did you guys see this video on the, um, of uh, this guy landing his airplane on the top of these buttes out in the middle of nowhere? Have you seen this? Yeah, I looked at a little I, of that. What got yeah, my attention with... was it's a, uh, I've flown that model of airplane. Well, uh, the airplane is pretty cool. What is that model of an airplane? A Highlander? Yeah. It's a little light experimental... Uh, Kind of in the LSA category, two it, place. It's, it's a Kit Fox deri- derivative, a Kit Fox Avid Flyer derivative. That's what uh, I was going to say. It looks nicer. a little Kit Fox-ish. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's nicer. It's It's got a bigger interior. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, Lynn Gardner, has one, and I've had a chance to get up close to it. Um, and, and, and yes, it really can do that. Oh. It's, I, you know, I can't decide whether I got whether I think this guy's nuts or really cool. Uh, <laughs> There's a video out there, um, several videos like this. You know, Super Cubs landing on sandbars and, and stuff like that. But there's one. It's a Super Cub. It's it's got Tundra tires. It it's there's a stiff breeze, and it comes in and kind of hovers, and then sets down right beside the camera, throttles down. Tail touches the ground, um, throttles back up. Tail comes off the ground, full throttle, rolls about five feet, lifts off again. Yeah, and it, it's you know, the whole thing is maybe fifteen feet. 
Yeah, it's a substantial. It's a substantial little airplane. Uh, uh, the Highlander, at least. Uh, yeah. yeah. With a with a hundred uh, six cylinder uh, jabber engine in it. Uh, it, it's a get up and get gone before, you know, they, they know you're even on takeoff roll. Mm-hmm, so, uh, mm-hmm. it's really interesting what you can do in a hundred horsepower versus what, you know, Cessna did with a hundred horsepower in a 150 or something. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I'm sorry. What, I'm sorry what do you mean by that? You it's mean, all in how you foil it. So, so you're, you're saying that, that, uh, they get a lot more performance out of it in this Highlander case than they do on the Cessna case. Is that what you're saying? Well, in, in, at least they get a lot more short field. Oh, okay. So. Okay. Yeah. You know, the, the, the 150, 152 are built for a certain type of purpose versus the Highlander built for another purpose, and they both do say the, their jobs very well. There you go. There you go. 150, 152 are meant to be the, the victims in a masochist reunion. I mean, a sadist reunion. They're meant to have the crap beat out of them in a training environment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the Highlander will take a lot of abuse, mm-hmm. but... It's a it's a tube and rag airplane as opposed to you know a stress skin monocoque design like the 152. It's quite a bit lighter at gross weight as mm-hmm. well because it's not meant to stand up to the abuse. I won't take this abuse much longer. Yeah. Oh, you're going to take a lot more abuse before it's over with. Yeah. And so well, this guy's no doubt about that. This guy really knows how to fly this airplane. Boy, he puts it down in some tiny little weird places. He's got about a half a dozen videos if you go into his his personal section on YouTube. This is hmm. what, what I'm looking at here. Yeah. Tail, tail dragger fun is what he goes by. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, he lands it. He's got a bunch of a series of them. The, the one that I was re- first referring to he lands on this this little butte. I mean, it's like a like a, a mountain with totally vertical sides and a relative. It is a butte. A relatively small, a relatively small, uh, somewhat flat top, you know, surface area. <laughs> and uh, and he lands in this thing, and he basically, you know, the the rollout, if you will, takes him pretty much to the far edge of this cliff. He talks about what happens. He says he says you don't want to. He says you don't want to go over the other end. He says it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that that like would those, generally be the case. There's yeah. a Bond movie where you know he's, he's he's stealing an airplane or something like that, and the airplane, I think it's a turbine porter, I'm not sure, um, doesn't have enough airspeed to fly, so he just dives it over a cliff and you know comes out the canyon the other end or something. Like well, you know, I was thinking about this. All kidding aside, it, it's not as simple as you know he goes over the cliff and then just kind of picks up airspeed. Because I'm just kind of thinking about this in my head. If he's going slow enough when he goes over the edge, he does have enough airspeed to have any control authority, which means that the airplane could tumble or do something really ugly, right? Well, you, get, you start to get control authority. You, you start to get control authority a little bit sooner than you you know in some designs. Yeah, you got control authority all the way through the stall. Okay, and this yeah. happens to be those designs where the control authority is very present, and particularly in roll uh, and, and rudder. Uh, you know, you can have the stick back, and it's it, it's doing that quiver and shake thing that uh, you know lets a blind guy. Not the stall light, and a deaf guy not see the hear the stall horn. Uh-huh. Uh, we're stalling, <laughs> and yeah. you're supposed to let off the stick about. Oh, I want that for my stall horn. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the sound, right? Can we STC that? That's now. I want that. Hey, you know, I mean, if you can make ringtones say whatever you want them to say. <laughs> well, I'd have to replace the horn. There's a super. There's a super cub. Uh, site. You Google it. Uh, Super Cub Owners Association or something like that. And 
um, I've, I've poked around there before looking for some art for an article and, and whatnot, but um, there's some great art, there's some great stills, but I'm sure there's some videos on that site too, um, or linked to from that site that would be very, very similar. Uh, you get enough breeze and, and uh, the right place at the right time, somebody knows what they're doing, and then all kinds of things are possible. Yeah, I do love yeah. the idea of just flying out into the middle of nowhere. Um, I'm not sure if I'm prepared to land on the as quite as gnarly a, a, a you know spots as this guy does, but the idea of finding a pasture out in the middle of nowhere and just kind of setting it down for the afternoon. Well, to, yeah. to be to be straight up with our listeners here, what what you'll see in this link uh, falls under that heading of uh, uh, you know this don't, is don't like try the, this like, at home. Yeah. Right, like the ad disclaimers for the car ads say, professional driver, closed course, don't try this with yours. Matter of fact, we shouldn't even be showing you that it'll do that. But <laughs> because but we're an irresponsible corporation, so we'll do it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Uh, guys that do this kind of stuff uh, got to have a lot of confidence in themselves, in their machines. they got to know that and recognize that there ain't no tow truck coming for you if you break it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and they need to have, you know, uh, a buddy standing by to come get them. Yeah. So, Amy, does this mean that you fly your Kit Fox this way? Well. <laughs> okay. New subject. <laughs> um, Moving right along. <laughs> it will. It will take off with just me in it in about fifty feet. Wow. I'll come off the ground. So the answer is power to weight ratio is such that if I had to, I probably could get out of a space like that. Mm-hmm. And getting into the space really isn't that hard in these very lightweight machines if you're good at spot landings. Mm -hmm. And it is my argument as a flight instructor for why every landing is a spot landing. There you go. Okay. So it may not be a short field landing every time, but I want you to put it on the spot you select. So Mm -hmm. when I, I... go with people, whether we're doing a flight review or learning situation, I always ask them, where are you going to put it? And sometimes I get really startled looks, but I'm adamant that... <laughs> on the run, you know, on lady, the ground. That's, yeah, that's right. Right. Okay, on, on the ground. Good start. <laughs> are, are you going to put it upside down or right side up? I, you know, pick pick one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. All fair. All fair. That's that's a guy we haven't seen on the air show circuit in a while. The guy that had the landing gear built on the top of his plane as well as on oh, the bottom. Yeah. And would there do the go. inverted landing, the inverted takeoff again. Uh, I, I kind of miss that guy. I like to see him hang out. I wonder if he's still around. I don't know. Yeah, it's been a while. You're right. It has been a while. Anyways, what else is going on? I got word from a friend of mine uh, that uh, a friend of ours at EAA has uh, accepted admission on the board of the Light Aircraft Manufacturing Association. Our buddy Earl Lauren, who's the VP of Industry and Regulatory Affairs at EAA, and he's doing that because another old buddy, uh, Tom Gunnerson, who's former president of the Ultralight Association and president and board member of LAMA, has accepted a position with the FAA in Light Sport Aircraft Office. Mm-hmm. And I'm just tickled silly. What is that? Shickled? T- uh, never mind. Yeah. Uh, that, 
that uh, the FAA has deemed to hire of Tom's extensive ground and knowledge into a uh, light sport aircraft office. Uh, I mean, there are so many federal agencies that have uh, reign over our world who are, suffer such deficits in knowledgeable people. And I won't mention the whose initials are just too silly to ask for. But uh, uh, in this is a case where FAA has regularly tapped people from industry, uh, knowledge posts in, in specialty offices. So Tom Gunnerson's moving from Lama to the uh, FAA. And Earl Lawrence, who's the VP of Industry and Regulatory Affairs at the EAA, has filled Tom's seat on the uh, Lama Board of Directors. So some continuity and, 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 and knowledge and expertise uh, following into the llama seat and uh, hooray for both guys that sounds cool but now let me so the llama guy moved up to the faa and the eaa guy moved up to llama does that mean we all move up a step well i don't know about you but i moved up to another beer <laughs> okay uh, yeah so that's pretty cool what what is the no i mean all kidding aside what is the effect of the lsa office at faa i mean are, do they have what what are they what's their well, deal they're they're kind of the uh, the like the small airplane director. It has a, a a lot to do with compliance and uh, 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 oversight of the FISDO handle general aviation. They handle general aviation and work on certification and engine work and the light sport aircraft office. For one thing, is going to be uh, uh, kind of involved in the ongoing compliance audit that the FAA is, is working to make sure that the light sport aircraft manufacturers are following the ASTMs that they certify their airplanes to. Uh, and the Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association is doing its own series of compliance audits that are much more extensive to help the manufacturers make sure that they keep everything up to snuff and all the T's crossed and I's, and both in how they manufacture the craft and how they keep track of the paperwork. So there's, uh, there, and we're going to see more of this out of the FAA in the coming years because some of the folks at the uh, higher level offices up on the 10th floor have kind of expressed concerns that, uh, that the, uh, uh, well, let's say, express concerns that there's really no way to make sure the LSA makers are following the rules that they agreed mm -hmm. to adhere to. Okay. And Lama had already started a, an, an audit program that somebody about a week and costs a lot of money for the manufacturer to have somebody come in and do this. So the FAA is starting its, it started its own series, a year long look at how the manufacturers are doing so far. Uh, they basically send somebody in for a day to do a quick run through on for work and look at the uh, the how the aircraft are assembled and so forth. So uh, that's just one of the things that the LSA office will be involved in. There's been some talk of modifying some of the ASTM rules uh, in some areas. Like we've already well, gone through one modification that allowed repositionable gear on amphibs. Yeah which was kind of a trap that the original rules unintentionally up, and it took a whole process to undo that. So there you go. Well, what other uh, parts of the rules is FAA thinking about tinkering with? Because that kind of sets the hair on the back of my neck afire. 
Well, they 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 already did the tinkering with the reasonable gear rule, right. uh, and, and there there's been some uh, discussion about a uh, an approval process for aircraft, something that formalizes an approval process for light sport aircraft that are in capable because under the rules uh, a, a private pilot with an instrument rating can fly a LSA category aircraft that's properly equipped under mm-hmm. the instrument rules and that was really not in it. that's kind of in violation of the, of, of the intent of the regulations yeah. and there's a realization there that there's an opportunity to help reduce the cost of, uh, of private flying for private pilots and instrument pilots by making them more accessible for other areas and some of the folks at the FAA would like to formalize with its own approval process rather than just uh, something that uh, bids a more credence or gives a little more credence to the well, to the FAR 23 process now than the simple manufacturer includes it so it's improved. Yeah, what my understanding is um, current the current regulation um, allows manufacturers to designate the types of operations, day VFR, night VFR, um, right. IFR, etc., um, <clears throat> if the airplane is appropriately equipped according to the manufacturer. Now, what, uh, and that's not a bad way to go about it for a lot of different reasons, uh, including manufacturer liability. The manufacturer doesn't think the airplane should be operated IFR, or maybe it shouldn't be operated IFR. So are you saying the FAA is maybe thinking about going in and overturning that or making it a blanket uh, or I, th- I think the intent of the light sport aircraft rule was to provide a day VFR airplane right. for sport pilots. And along the process of the rulemaking, they opened up this window that if the manufacturer equips it for and writes into uh, approval, Right. Uh, it's okay for something like you just explained. Well, I don't think any of the aircraft manufacturers are formally saying this is a good airplane for IFR. I could be wrong there. But some of the airplanes are coming out clearly equipped comparable to, you know, 150, 152, uh, a Cherokee. Some of them coming out some are very often better equipped with uh, with autopilots with altitude hold that are coupled and have all the things of an IFR airplane. And there's a little gray area in there where apparently there, there's a belief that some private ones are exploiting a loophole or what they believe is a loophole and operating them in a way that which they're not intended. So they would like to make a way for that to happen legally. And make sure that the equipment is up to the to the same standard as what's required in our FAR 23 airplanes. What were you going to say, let, Amy? Go ahead. Let me let me let me just clarify that and be sure I'm hearing it correctly. What you're saying, Dave, is that the light sport aircraft were meant to be flown by light sport certified pilots, or private instrument, whatever pilots who no longer want to go get a medical. And for a private pilot with a medical, with an instrument rating, to take and buy that airplane because it's $50,000 less expensive and not necessarily so, quite frankly, but anyhow, to get this new $150,000 LSA and use it in instrument conditions 
is a loophole. Is that what you're telling me? That's that's the perception that it's going on out there, and the perception at the FAA. Kind of, even though the, the FAA. airplane, even though the airplane meets the FAA's uh, Part ninety one two oh five regulations. Well, yeah, that's kind of the kind of the way it was explained to me. Okay. Uh, I just wanna. I just wanna understand. It, yeah, I, I just wanna understand too. I, this is not the first time that uh, the FAA has decided that the regulations that it signed off on were uh, needed more regulation. Let's put it that way, or needed. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of the rule of unintended consequences. I think is the way to well, put it. What? what, what do you know anything about specific concerns on the part of the FAA? Uh, what I've heard specifically, and I get this from partly from a friend of mine that works at 800 Independence, right. yeah. is that the aircraft are the aircraft are equipped to do this. Uh-huh. Uh, they've got the attitude indicator, the directional gyro capability, uh, and there's a more latitude given to a private pilot with a medical. And night currency to fly these things at night when they're equipped for night with the right lights and the manufacturer signs off on that use that these guys are kind of taking farther and saying, well, night and IFR aren't that different, so uh, it's got everything I need, Modi, transponder. Well, here's uh, here's and the yes is an IFR approved under the TSO for IFR approved GPS, but it's the primary form of navigation because the manufacturer put it in the panel and called it part of the standard equipment or the equipment. Because uh-huh. what gets the approval in on some of this stuff is not a separate TSO like we see for FAR 23 airplanes. It's the manufacturer deciding that it's adequate for the job right. and approving it as part of the airplane. Right. So that's where the, the, the little concern falling here. Well, and that's, if you that's look around, a, you'll see some ads where the air, the ads say that this aircraft is equipped uh-huh. comparable to an IFR standard GA okay. airplane. It'd I mean, be perfectly does, suitable for that if they a rule that let them. Does the FAA well, have evidence that people are running around f- flying IFR in aircraft that are not approved for it? I don't. I don't know. Does the FAA have evidence that people are flying LSAs, IFR, um, when they don't have the appropriate equipment under 90, whatever 91 section it is? I haven't heard of that happening, no. Okay. okay. So, now, I, I, go ahead, go Jeb. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, go ahead. I, I, you're, you're next. Okay, I have, I have to ask. <laughs> yes, because we're always very polite about that kind of thing here. Yeah. Oh yeah, Diane. Ladies first, ladies first. Um, <laughs> don't do it, not, Dave. Not to don't put you in the hot it. seat. You, you, you open um, the can of worms. I was going to say that's why we always let Dave go first. But go ahead, Amy. Yeah, it's okay. Um, that then I I really have to go back to the experimental regs here because yeah. it sounds like the ATSM has it set up very similar to the experimental, and there's a lot of debate in the experimental market about high-performance experimentals being IFR-equipped, certified, 
how do you even certify an experimental? And, and, and the FAA is very unhappy about it, too. And it yeah. sounds like they're all talking the same, we need to change this theme. Because right now, as the manufacturer of our airplane, we can decide whether the equipment in it, which is not necessarily TSO'd, is adequate for the operations we want to do with it, which includes... IFR, where obviously we're both ATPs. So, and, and, and very little has to be very little has to be TSO uh, to begin I with. Say, I was going to ask. Nothing, not to get off on a tangent, but what has to be TSO to be for the aircraft to be IFR? Yeah, well, I, I think just the transponder. You don't know, not even the transponder, but you'll see all transponders are TSO'd because they want to be. The, the transponder is a very right. generic thing, but does it have to be? No, no you it don't, has to have. A you don't have 20, to have a transponder it, to fly IFR. Right, and if you have a transponder, it has to be IFR certified every 24 months, correct? Right, right. that's correct. And if you have a pedostatic system, which... It has to be IFR it certified. It has to be IFR certified. That's exactly right. Actually, you have it's just certified. It's not necessarily IFR certified, just certified. Right, right, right. exactly. But in, and the altimeter, you know, yeah. these things have to be done to make an IFR certified airplane. See, the, the big difference here, at least this is my perception, okay, <laughs> is that in the experimental market, experimental arena, the volume's always been relatively small. Uh -huh. And the number of people that actually chose to do this has not been a significant part of the population. Matter of fact, you've got guys out there like uh, Rich Grunsman at at, uh, at Vans Aircraft who would look at you and kind of sneer and say, "Why do you care about IFR? It's an airplane for fun." Yeah. Oh well, uh, yeah. You say all that, but then I'm standing there last summer listening to the FAA tell me that experimental aircraft make up thirty percent of the GA right. fleet now. Yeah, exactly. And well, I, I got to think true. that a substantial portion of them are flying IFR, uh, yeah. perhaps in, in much larger numbers than the number of uh, LSAs that are flying IFR. Last time I checked, there were only a handful um, of LSAs in the U.S. that their manufacturers have approved for IFR. So, I mean, well, we're, we're talking... Technically, the way the AFR... The FAA feels about it. The, the manufacturer can't approve the airplane for IFR. They can only equip it for IFR because IFR is outside the envelope the airplane was intended for I think under NAS rule or the ASTM rules. That's why the now starting to get to now uh, is starting to get to a very interesting thing. I agree with you, Jeb, because I'm worried that they're playing the same game on experimental. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, and, anyway, just, so, if, just, if you just get me here, up to the speed here. The experimental volume, it, it, it is up. I don't 30% of what's flying now, not what's registered. But 3,000 experimental aircraft is still a big chunk of the fleet. Yeah. But it does grow at the same rate in the eyes of the FAA. It doesn't have the potential to grow at the same rate that the light sport market does, which grew about 2,500 airplanes in about four years. Okay. Uh, you I'll, see where I'll I'm give going? you 
back. Jack, you're, you, are you following us? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I no, do I this am. all the time. No, yeah. no I, I am, more or less. But I, I was curious, I was curious I to hear either Amy or got. Jeb um, um, just kind of talk a little bit more about why it suddenly got interesting. What, what was the aspect of it that you suddenly said, oh... Um, the the aspect that that suddenly got interesting was um, the current LSA certification rules uh, have provisions in them that um, allow manufacturers to determine on their own the purposes the 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 types of operations uh, in which those air, aircraft can be used day VFR night VFR being an example IFR being a third example. All of a sudden, it, what got interesting is the discussion led to the uh, point that uh, the FAA all of a sudden uh, appears not to like the idea of the manufacturer deciding uh, day-night IFR, VFR, and instead the FAA making those decisions um, based on some criteria to be determined, I would presume. And and do we believe that the FAA would be more strict or less strict about making these judgments? Well, Jack, I believe that the FAA would simply say it, there is no IFR in this kind of airplane because the kind of pilot who should be flying this kind of airplane uh, should not be flying IFR. Hmm. But that's part of the problem. And that's the problem. I agree. There'd be a great or the FAA because these aircraft are much cheaper to acquire, much cheaper to operate, um, and um, they are good training platforms. So far, we, you know, for the best to the best of my knowledge, people who have trained in them, uh, primary training, etc., have have enjoyed the experience. Um, it would be unfortunate at best and perhaps criminal at worst if the FAA decided that LSA should not be flown IFR. Uh, I, for, I agree for, with you, Jeff. And I am even more worried, and this is the, where it comes off, it, it, it feels to me like they would take that step and then step right to the next step of saying, we want to determine what experimentals are used for too exactly right let me ask you i don't see i don't see this happening because of the ripple through other regulations that they would have to change Mm -hmm. i mean i mean i mean if you think about it because the rules for the pilots of lsa uh who can operate a light sport aircraft you know basically by black and white language says anybody with this training or more which okay, yeah. if you if you're a private pilot with a medical certificate and the airplane's already equipped for night, and the manufacturer's specifications say good for night, uh, that restriction on the sport pilot certificate, no night, no IR, doesn't apply. But let me ask Another you this: thing Here's... here is there's a real potential here for these air to be adopted more and more for instrument training. Exactly right. Right. Let me ask and, you this, though. And they Here's don't one. have to be approved for instrument training. They don't actually have to be approved for use in the instrument environment to be suitable for instrument training and to log the time for it and have it go forward and, you know, and, and, and help you build where you get in the airplane that is. So right. I, I don't see them rolling this back. I think trying to do is find a way to accommodate it that, that salves their nerves 
that fits that their profile and 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 the philosophy of this whole thing to be with. Mm-hmm. I don't think they want to roll back. I don't think they want to try to unscramble the egg. Now, even if they don't roll it back, though, I think I have a question about how this all works. And and then and then I'd like to be curious. I think we got to move on to a new subject. But um, here's my question. Um, Sport pilots are sport pilots, and they have limitations on what they can do. For example, a sport pilot, an extreme case, and a sport pilot couldn't be an IFR pilot. Um, A a private pilot can, of course, be IFR rated or have have that, that training. Right. So a private pilot who is IFR rated can fly a properly equipped and so forth light sport aircraft IFR. All right. Yes. Yes. So far. Okay. Now we expect that many of members of the aging pilot population, the private pilot population, are going to choose to let their medicals expire, uh, and and then continue to fly using the light sport rules, if you will. Go on. Do they are they entitled to exercise some of these private pilot? privileges no. if you will or, no. or once your medical no. is out you are suddenly a sport pilot right. yes as yeah unless you want you want to fly a bigger airplane but you have to do it with someone who has a medical right in you the have to have a medical. Has to, someone see. on board yeah. has to have a medical. i see okay so and, and the way that works jack is that the the the, the training requirements to become a private pilot are more extensive than the training required to become a sport pilot. Sure, of course. And so in the FAA's view, if you've earned your private pilot's license or higher and you don't renew your medical, you let it lapse, you already exceed the training requirements for the light sport. You still have to adhere to the uh, uh, checkout requirements that exist under the sport pilot rules right. for the specific type of light sport. Uh, unless it's a legacy light sport that you you know that you're already qualified under to fly on the private pilot privileges, and I'm talking about airplanes like an air coupe or an older Ronca or Taylor craft, right? That meet the definition of the light sport aircraft, but are car three or twenty three certified. Or, so or for instance, ha- my kit or are ex- ex- right experimental amateur built. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty interesting, I guess. Um, I, I just one of the things that struck me as I was learning more about this in the last year is that uh, um, the the FBO folks I'm hanging out with are telling me that that um, almost exclusively the interest they're seeing in light sport is existing private pilots who are creating I don't know an escape hatch, if you will, um, for themselves. The very sure. very few people are taking are learning sport pilot just for its own sake. And, uh, well, that's that's going to change. You think that's going to change because there's a couple of there's a couple of forces at work here that are just starting to come into play on this. Uh, you know, very few of the fence flight schools that I know of have talked up sport pilot as a step on the way to a private pilot's license, mm-hmm. right. which it is designed to be. That's why they let you apply all that time in sport pilot training and your time flying as a sport pilot toward your private certificate. Cessna Aircraft is rewriting its flight school syllabus uh, 
and its Cessna Pilot Center's program to take advantage of that very aspect of the sport pilot rule and formalize it into their training. If you want to go into a Cessna Pilot Center, and this is only going to start to come into play when they're delivering sky catchers, okay? Mm, okay. But when they have a light sport aircraft to put on the ramp for you to use this in, if you want to come in and get your private pilot's license at a Cessna Pilot Center, the first thing they're going to do is train you to the sport pilot certificate level and get you that certificate in the sky catcher. Hmm. Right out of the box, you have more utility at 20 hours or 25 hours of training and passing the sport pilot check ride because now you can take husband, wife, kid, girlfriend, mom, or dad with you, and you can't do that as a solo student pilot working on his private. So their idea is that you will be a checked-out able to not only solo but carry passengers while you're still a private pilot student pilot and go somewhere yeah and go somewhere somewhere. which is very different sounds like a two-edged sword to me but i I guess well but they see it also lowers the cost for the student pilot because of the lower rental cost skycatcher that's going to be applied because cessna has been really from your lips to whoever pilots Cessna has been really diligent with its Cessna pilot centers about getting them to put G1000 equipped 172s on the flight line to train student pilots for the private. Okay. And that's what you move up to from the Skycatcher, and the rental difference is going to be substantial. Yeah, they're cheaper uh, than uh, they're cheaper than 172s. They're not cheaper than the, than than traditional training aircraft. They're not they're not cheaper than the forty year old one seventy two, but they're a lot cheaper. G one thousand equipped two thousand six two thousand seven two thousand eight. Well, 170. let's let's talk about it. The G one thousand one seventy two is two hundred thousand dollars. The Skycatcher is one hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah, basically. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that from a practical standpoint, they see a really smart way here to lower the overall cost. Keep the student, and this has been Cessna's key to success for decades, keep the student in the Cessna family as a move-up airplane. Yeah. Uh, you, not sell them a, you may not sell them a G1000-172. You'll sell them a Skycatcher more likely if they're in the mood to buy. And then when they're ready to move up, uh, they're already in the Cessna family. They're more apt to buy another 172 and maybe even that G1000-equipped 172. But... Cessna is the first outfit that I've seen that is formalizing the 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 whole philosophy of the sport pilot as a step toward a private pilot's license, and take advantage of the benefits of your training time counts, your time counts, that cross country work you do with passengers once you pass your sport pilot license check ride, can count toward that that total time that you need to pass your uh, uh, private pilots. That's uh, pretty interesting. I never heard of that before. That's, that's an interesting way of doing it. Yeah, Cessna's well, doing it on a much larger scale, but it's, it's, being, it's been done before. It's continuing to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, has very much yeah. so. Uh, Sporties, in fact, in, in, yeah, at exactly. Claremont County Airport, is famous for all of their beginning pilots start out with a recreational certificate. And then step up from there because Hal Shevers really believes in that. It's um, instrumental in getting a recreational certificate. 
Yeah, he was. He, he definitely was. And he also strongly feels he likes the recreationals to step up better than the than the sport pilot. Yeah. But that's a conversation you should have with Hal, honestly. I'd be yeah. I'd be glad to. That would be great. Yeah. Um what just so what can you fly with a recreational certificate? Well, you can you can fly a, a heavier airplane, but you can only put one other person in it. Okay. And you can't go anywhere. You can't. It doesn't have the cross country component. You have to I be signed off. I thought the recreational allowed you to fly up to four seats, up to two hundred yeah, horsepower, but, but, fixed but gear, not, but no farther than fifty miles. And only one person. Yeah, and one only one person, person in the ah, I didn't realize that it limited you yeah. to one person. I thought yeah, you, you can't could carry fill up four. all the seats. No, you can't fill up all the seats. So it had an even dumber license than I thought it was. <laughs> well, we're gonna. We should talk sure. some more about this when, with our LSA friends when we get down there in a couple of weeks, and uh, um, it's pretty interesting stuff. Hey, Amy, I have a question for you. Um, yes, sir. So I had uh, a cool afternoon yesterday. Uh, we had the first uh, San Francisco Aviation Meetup out here, the UCAP Meetup. We uh, huh? got together. We we announced uh, this is Will Hawkins and I put this together, and we. Okay. Had, we announced that we were going to uh, be get, be meeting for beers at a particular uh, 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 watering hole uh, near San Francisco Airport, coincidentally. And uh, and we just threw it out to all of our listeners and said, come, if you want to come in and, and sit down with us for a little while um, and say hi, we'd love to, to say hi. So we did that. We got about a half dozen people. It wasn't a huge crowd, but it was nice. It was a very pleasant uh, uh, afternoon of... of uh, of uh, bar flying, I guess you'd call it. Bar flying, get it? Huh? Anyways. Uh. Uh, <laughs> so anyways. Yeah, picking my feet up. Question that came up. During our, take drink. <clears throat> question that came up while we were talking. Um, we were wondering, we were just kind of talking to ourselves and trying to compare notes of how much does, do people in general rely on the CFI that they're flying with to save their butt? Uh, at what at what point in their training? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I don't know. I guess we were we were just generally talking about all different kinds of points. Um, I, I think a lot of times where we're talking about uh, you know private pilots, you know, who are for whatever reason flying with a CFI, either socially or or for some sort of training. Um, you know, how much an already rated private pilot yeah. flying with a CFI, not in search of a BFR or not in search of additional training. Well, I, oh. let's, either case, I think, is it was our discussion. But I just wondered, you know, you, you being a CFI, you know, you've, you may have thought this through a bit. And, and do you, how do you brief your students? What is your expectation? What's been your experience about this kind of stuff? My, my experience is I'm always PIC. I am always, if I'm in the airplane, if I'm in the baggage compartment and something bad happens, and I'm the CFI in the airplane. I am PIC. Okay. That's the thing after, you need come to after realize. Amy. Yeah, if, if Amy and yeah. I go out flying, I've got a commercial. She's got a CFI, ATP, whatever. Um, if uh, we bounce a wingtip off of something and the FAA comes a-calling, they're going to come after Amy. They're not going to come after me, even if it is my airplane, even if I am in even the left if, seat. Even if there was no transaction, I'm not getting paid. We're just having a friendly ride. Interesting. It's my responsibility and this really stinks on a certain level, but yeah. it's my responsibility to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't screw the pooch. Yep. I mean, sorry, uh, but but the reality of the situation is 
I can brief all I want, but mm-hmm. I have to be hair trigger spring ready to do something. And I have very, very rarely in my now almost 30 years, not quite, but almost 30 years of flying, had a circumstance where I wasn't ready to take the airplane. And even in the circumstance that that happened in, I did manage to talk the pilot out of what was going on and get he got the airplane back. And then I suggested that perhaps we, we um, unstow the controls on my side mm-hmm. so that we didn't what, have that problem again. Without um, um, naming names or dates or anything like that, can you elaborate? Yeah, I had I had uh, someone uh, pop off of a stall series into into a spin, and oh I had no controls. And I oh. can tell you that it was a very uncomfortable experience. Yeah, but given that that I fly by mouth all the time, which is what I like fly to call by, like, fly <laughs> by mouth. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I kept talking because that was the only thing that was going to change the situation. Yeah. And I have an ex-wife it, who drives by that, and that pilot did what I said, and the airplane. Oh, the man. I can itself. see a whole. I can see a whole new line of product here. <laughs> uh, a, a, a voice-actuated voice salvation system. Somebody you get yourself in trouble solo. You him. push a red button, and Amy's voice comes out and says, "Now, I'm ring." You really there don't want people, to do There are people out there who will call in and say, I always hear Amy's voice. What are you talking about? I've heard her voice for years, ever since, you know, I got my private or my instrument with her. That creepy little lady in my left ear. You know? No, I'm sure they don't say that. I, I, think, I think there's some real potential here. I mean, they're putting blue buttons in, in light sport and, and, and Cirrus aircraft wow. where you push the button and it automatically levels. How about a little pink voice? You push the button, and Amy's voice comes out and says, "Please select one of the following options, <laughs> <laughs> and be quick." Yeah, well, more likely, it's going to say, "What the crap are you doing? Do this." I'm sorry. It will be a tap. I, I like to tap. I'm a big tapper when I'm when I'm teaching instrument students. I'll start tapping on the instrument I think you should be looking at, uh-huh. and if you're really bad with your scan, I'll start tapping one. Here, 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 here. Keep moving. Move your whack eyes. Do it. Yeah, whack them all. And uh, that makes people that uh, that that invariably makes people crazy. Yeah. But they do giggle. Yeah. They do giggle. They get where I'm coming from. So my, my double eye had a saying. Oh, yeah. Uh, my double eye had a saying of of uh, this is basically while you're flying straight and level is a great time to get set up for the approach you're about to fly. And uh, which you know is 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 obviously true. The, the the what he missed, what he did not understand is the reason we were flying straight and level is because I was concentrating so hard that I didn't have the bandwidth to get set up for the approach. Yeah. But, well, yeah, eventually you did though, and part of that was your CFI going. Okay, I hate to break this to you while you're all warm and fuzzy here. So but you just about, yeah. You just overflew the final approach, Fitz. Yeah, exactly. We need to be a 60 seconds ahead of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. my, my, my primary CFI is his favorite, his favorite uh, you really need to pay more attention phrase was, did you really intend for this to be going on? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm imagining the answer is almost always no. I, 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 he and I could not would not have gotten along. Well, now, and you have to remember that I had some very kind CFIs in my day because they had to deal with somebody who was basically began life completely directionally dyslexic. Which means if I was told to turn left, I would execute the prettiest right turn you've ever seen. And that's all good and well till you're taken off on nine left from, you know, Miami International Airport. (laughs) Yeah. And they want your little rear end to turn left in that 172 and go away as fast as you can pedal. All all kidding aside, Um, how did you how do you deal with that? What what, can you you, can you you train yourself to know left and right? Not only can you train yourself to know left and right, but get this, as I was training as an instrument pilot, I had to add or subtract 180 from any number I came up with, because <laughs> <Yeah>. it was wrong. <laughs> it was wrong by 100. I knew it. I knew it. You know, you're doing the bearing to the station, and ah. in the end, I took all the numbers off, and I would use a pencil, and I would create an RMI. Uh-huh. I would super the the NDB needle onto the direction uh, the the DG because that was the only way I could I could see it graphically mm-hmm. and I could make up my mind and to this day figuring out how to get into holding patterns all that kind of stuff I do graphically no math mm-hmm. um, and it's not that I'm crappy at math it, it's that I have to bypass something somewhere. Uh, to get rid of that that uh, directional dyslexia, and um, and and it works for me. And yes, being in the airplane for so long helped with the right and the left. And I that really doesn't happen very often anymore. Did your uh, Except for when I'm giving directions, telling somebody how to get somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> you should check those on Google. Did your instrument um, examiner have an issue with doing it that way? Which I would imagine is not the standard way they teach you to do it. You need to understand that the only time I really had problems, the only time it, it, it caught up with me the most was when I was trying. I, I started my flight instruction career as a double I. You need to understand. I couldn't get a job as a CFI. At the time, CFIs were a dime a dozen, so I went back and got my double I. And a double I walked off the job mm-hmm. just as I was finishing up. And they basically said, if you show up on Monday morning with a double I, this is like on a Thursday afternoon, you can have the job. <laughs> and I was three quarters of the way through. You know, there's no real uh, minimal time requirement. So I, you know, told my instructor, I need to finish now. I need this job. I'm down to like the last 600 bucks. Mm-hmm. And. And so we finished that weekend. I took the check ride. In fact, I had to, it was actually IFR conditions and we couldn't finish the check ride. So I did the oral, which was six hours or something ridiculous like that. Went up uh, to do the flying and it was the same guy I did my CFI with. So he knew I could fly. And uh, we had to come back because it was just deteriorating very rapidly. It was out in Sonoma County. Um, mm-hmm. California, and I had to get up the next morning very early and finish the check ride. Um, it, it worked out fine; it really did. But but when I went to interview for a job at American Flyers, they wanted me to do the math in the interview on the ground, and I totally blew the interview. I did not get that job. Hmm. Um, you know, this was months later or whatever, because it's just really hard for me. Hmm. It's just really hard for me. I, I, I'm 
better at math than I ever was, mostly because, you know, I had kids, and you have to do that stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry, having kids makes you good at math? Yeah, because you I have suppose you might be... Help them with There's a joke homework. in there about multiplication, but I won't. Yeah. You, have to, you have to count to make sure you have the requisite number of kids. <laughs> They're all there. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot of ways you could go with this. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to get rabid about it. So getting back to my yeah, getting back to my to the original question, although that it was a very very interesting uh, uh, side trip. Um, what <laughs> should? No, no. I mean that, that really is interesting to hear about. To hear about well, the CFI's perspective on, on... You should never ask anybody. If you're going up in an airplane, you should never be complacent thinking someone else is going to save your butt. But on that side of it, the CFI should be ready to save both your butts at any second because it's going to be the CFI's fault. That's what I really meant. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? i got to tell a story. Yeah. Okay. I, I, was, I was flying right seat in a Skyhawk with a guy... Much more senior, both in age and hours, and I presume ratings. I don't know. Um, and we were ferrying the airplane from one point to another, and uh, we're shooting the um, uh, VOR, I guess one four approach into Warrenton, Virginia, Warrenton, Fauquier County, and it's it's good IFR. This is it's close to the to the MDA for the approach. Um, and we leave the final approach fix. <clears throat> His the, it, the VOR needles looked like stick figures. Okay, they they were all askew, the pegged whatever. And oh, he they starts like dancing stick figures. Yeah, he he starts down the final approach course and, and reduces power and, and starts descending. And I'm like, oh crapola! Uh, any minute I'm expecting a pine tree to come through the windshield. And the guy is very senior to me, and I'm a lot younger at the time. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I didn't say anything. I wouldn't do that now. I'd, I'd definitely speak up. And he got about halfway down the the approach and said, I can't do this. You take over. <laughs> okay. And I, and I said, I'm happy to. Thank you very much. And firewalled the throttle and got a climb going and called a missed approach and fumbled my way back to the the uh, holding fix, which also happened to be the final approach fix. Made an orbit, got squared away, got aligned up, got cleared for another approach, started down the approach, broke out. He says, okay, thanks, I've got it now. <laughs> no, no, it's no, true no, story. I'm walking this true approach story. now. Wow. You know, I, was, I was spitting mad at him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well... Yeah, because, you know, he tried to kill you, frankly. Well, there's that, and, and he, he obviously was, you know, way behind the airplane, but just totally unprepared for the situation. He was clearly the senior person on board, irrespective of, uh, and he, he had more hours. He was definitely in command of the aircraft, but he wasn't prepped for the flight, so. That's interesting. Well, you know, Dave I and I were. I can't tell you how many times I've had the senior person on the flight fall asleep on me. Uh, well, no, we so we talked about that last episode. I don't think we can talk about that. <laughs> no, but I mean, they get very relaxed, and they're that you're yeah. absolutely right. They're not necessarily. You have to be ready to save your own rear end. Is is the answer, Jack? Uh huh. Yeah. I, I, I've flown uh, what we would call demo flights for pilot report articles with uh, uh, owners' planes, very often experimental amateur built airplanes, who were 
many, many dozens of hours away from being fully up to speed with that airplane. Mm-hmm. And finding that finding finding that my first time in their airplane, and I've got maybe ninety minutes of us, you know, tooling around, and I've done stalls and I've done approaches and all this, and suddenly finding them looking at me, going, uh, "Can you get us back?" <laughs> Man, uh, it happened to me with a guy that was a marketing exec for a company that was selling a new trainer. And we'd left Lakeland. During sun and fun, to go out to the practice area down south, south of the airport, a uh, very well-established practice area, uh, we're going to go down there, and I'm going to do the demo flight sequence. And, you know, we're going to do some work at uh, what it used to be called Circle X. That's uh, South Air Park, private strip. Private strip, it is a sand runway with grass growing on it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so we'd done our takeoffs and our landings and our short field and our soft field I'd gone up and I'd done uh, several calls in different configurations power on power off clean dirty uh, gone up to altitude and, and talked to Tampa uh, to get kind of a speed over about 10 miles to see how screwed out at a 75% power setting and it's time to go back and the guy says uh uh do you know how to get back in? Mm. Well, you mean, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Well, do you know how to fly arrival? I've never flown the arrival. Oh, okay, yeah, I've flown the arrival. Uh, all we need is the paperwork frequency and the no TAM and, oh, that's yeah. in my briefcase. Good deal. Where's your briefcase? In my car. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, he says, can you fly us back in? Since you, Did you do it this trip? Yeah, I did it this trip. So you remember how to do it? Well, I don't exactly have the freaking frequencies memorized. We're going to go to Zephyr Hill and have a soda, and we're going to call flight service, and we're going to get the frequencies on the telephone because I'm not stumbling around in the airspace in the middle of the show with the Parker arrival going on in an airplane that I don't know very well and procedures I don't have in front of me. Well, no, here's my question. At the risk of having setting off a heart attack in Dave, uh, how do you... <laughs> How do you protect yourselves against this? I, I'm not Amy. You're in a different kind of situation as you've just, just described. Uh, Dave and Jeb, you you have occasion to fly with a lot of strangers for business reasons. I would imagine. Um, how careful are you about who you fly with? Um, it's first of all, I don't do a lot of that. But the 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 uh, the ones that I have done, uh, I've talked to the pilot. Um, you know, coordinated. A uh, variety of things before the flight. Uh, when we hook up, we kind of sit and, and talk. It's he's doing the same to me as I'm doing to him. We're both sizing each other up, mm-hmm. and you know, can this guy walk and chew gum? Do I want to be in an airplane with him? And you know, does he does he does he walk the walk and does he talk the talk? Um, but at the same time, I've always been prepared. Um, you know, if he keeled over and had a heart attack or, you know, something else, you know, untoward would happen, I, I've always thought anyway that I was prepared to take over. And, yeah, landing out, as Dave did uh, in that situation and, and, and getting your act together, 
uh, is always a very, very good solution. Mm -hmm. Just because mm -hmm. you took off from Sun and Fun or just because you took off from Oshkosh or, or home base or whatever doesn't mean you have to land back there as your first land. Well, and the, the gentleman that I was with had, had come down by airlines. He was a marketing exec for this company, but right. he had not flown the airplane in there. And as we talked, uh, it, let's put it this way. At the end of my experience with that particular airframe, I had almost as much airtime in it as he did. <laughs> That's never good. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I didn't realize this, and it, it modified a little bit, uh, well, quite a bit the conversations that I have with pilots before I fly their airplanes uh, because I knew the guy from a prior position. I didn't know that he'd only been hired the week before and that he hadn't been checked out on the airplane yet. They told him to go with me on the demo ride on the basis of about 45 minutes of airtime that he had. Mm. And actually, by the time we landed back in Lakeland, I had quite a bit more time in the airplane than he had. And he hadn't flown in anything that simple and or light in quite a while. Uh, so he never had his hand on the controls. But to answer Jack's question, uh, I usually get into this with kind of a running conversation. So how would you yeah. get into flying? Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. what made you pick this airplane? What kind of t trips have you taken with how, it? How long have you been doing time? this kind of work? And have yeah, you ever exactly. flown this kind of a mission before? Yeah. And, you know, how, did it, how did it go? You know, is the airplane yeah. still flyable? Uh, yeah. You know, and and like like, like Jeb said, I've had people do that to me. They don't know me from Adam. Yeah, exactly. And you know, they got their sixty. You know, they got their sixty questions that they narrowed down to the first twenty. And if you want to see some really big eyeballs, yeah, when they ask you how you got into aviation, say, well, my first three or four hundred hours were in hang gliders. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know how to fly anything with a motor for four years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I got that down now. I got that down, and I'll sell that. Um, before we run out of time, there's something else I want to talk about a little bit here. Um, Amy, yes. uh, I, I I would assume that you are familiar with Jeb's new living situation. Are you? I have not yet visited Jeb's new living situation, but, but, but I have heard about it. You're familiar with the, the, the fact that he's gotten himself a place on an air park, on, a, on an airport uh -huh. community. Uh, so I'm wondering if what, what words of wisdom as a longtime um, airport community resident do you have for, for the new guy? Get to know uh, your by the way, I, should, I, I said that in a funny way. <laughs> they're at two different air, airport communities, not that they're neighbors now, but they are both living the lifestyle. What, what's, uh, what's your advice for him? Get to know your neighbors real well. They're going to be a – air parks uh, draw a very interesting group of people as evidenced by the fact that both Jeb and I live in yeah. air park communities. <laughs> very good save. Very good save. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they almost always have very lively and vibrant and sometimes, um, sometimes intriguingly vibrant. <laughs> Um, homeowners Di association meetings. Dynamic, I think, is the dynamic. Word. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and and this is because there's there's this very um, big piece of common property out there mm -hmm. that yep. is the runway, and um, there's a lot to maintaining an air park community as a cohesive unit and maintaining that private airport which does not have the privileges of a public airport when it comes to um, 
runway abutments and uh-huh. uh, approach and departure clearance areas and things like that. And um, you will find yourself suddenly um, discovering, you know, that the piece of property abutting to the airport is trying to rezone or that somebody's gone and accepted a lease from a cell phone company to put a tower up that happens to be in the pattern. And, you know, so you need to get to know your neighbors. And I don't just mean your neighbors in the air park. But you need to get to know who and what is around that air park because part of what we have to do to keep ourselves as an air park is is protect the area around and under the traffic pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not you're not an island into the world. You're an island as part of a world. And what goes on in the ocean around your island can have a big influence on what happens on your little island. Yeah. Absolutely. And you will also find even within the airport community, if your neighbors are selling their houses to people who are not pilots and who don't have airplanes, you could have a problem too. Yeah. Exactly right. Interesting. Yeah. Enough of those and it could wind up not being a runway anymore. Yeah. Depending on how the air park is structured. And right. there are some air parks where there's never a problem that way. There are other air parks where it can be a very big problem. There are some issues right now with and questions with Punta Gorda Airport where there are hangars that are actually through the through the fence, uh-huh. i.e. Uh-huh. The, the hangars are outside of the <clears throat> airport property, and they, they have to have access to get onto the field with a, with a movable fence. And um, suddenly... TSA has come and said everybody has to have background check and be badged to be on the field because there's an airline that goes in and out of there. See, that, that's more of that Bravo Sierra crap out of that agency that has no bearing in reality. Well, it has uh, no bearing in reality except it affects all of our reality on a well, day-in, day-out basis. It affects realities, but they're just a- ways. Their justification has no basis in reality. This is that recent uh, uh, directive. This wasn't even a rulemaking on their part. It was just a directive. Uh, you know, they have exempted GA pilots that are based at airports with airline service for years when there was physical separation. And suddenly, uh, just a few weeks ago, they issued a new directive. It says, well, on second thought, uh, we really don't have any evidence of any issues we don't have any incidents that we can point to but by god this just seems like a good time to expand the number of people that we have our thumbs on oh uh, yeah and, and so i say bravo now, sierra man i'm being this i'm i'm being as tame and kind as i'm possibly c- capable of well now we've got the eaa chapter 565 uh steak dinner and they all have to go through tsa to get onto the field to get to the eaa building to have the steak dinner yeah i mean how stupid is that yeah. Well, pretty pretty damn stupid. And, yeah. you know, since that's their middle initial, stupid, uh, I, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, it just takes my breath away. Yeah. It just takes my breath away. Yeah. And how do you do BYOB? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, in three-ounce bottles. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, what? Uh, Thank you, Jack. For, seven, for $7 a hit. Yeah. Uh, shots, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Um, 
I was going to say something, now I forgot. Oh, I know what I was. Uh, we are actually kind of reaching the end of our allotted time here. Um, what have we forgotten? Are there some subjects we wanted to talk about today that we've skipped? I just want to do a real quick hello to my old buddy back in D.C., Ron David, who's uh, uh, a longtime uh, video producer, motion picture producer, uh, voiceover artist, uh, radio personality, once worked for CBS. He has a new uh, uh, podcast on his site called The Sounds of Wings. It's an aviation history podcast. I've put the, the link where uh, it can be gotten to for the uh, show notes. Uh, some of you that may dip into and listen to Ron's little, it's about 12 to 15 minutes. They're all historically in nature. Uh, you may recognize his voice as a narrator or a voiceover artist from some other stuff about aviation, but I'd commend anybody that's a fan of aviation history to uh, give a listen to the uh, Sounds of Wings Aviation History podcast, and the uh, website is thesoundofwings.com. Cool. Anybody else? Uh, I wanted to. Uh, I, I wanted to just take a take a second to remind people to definitely check the price of gas when you're going places because it's all over the map right now. It sure all is. Over the map. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just because and you think we can shop, we can get better prices if we look around is what you're saying. I oh, think yeah. the more we shop, the better the prices are going to get. Uh, okay. Don't, don't, you know, go someplace just because that's the only airport, you know, you think you can go to. Check around. Mm -hmm. Really encourage those FBOs that are being reasonable about their pricing and well, discourage the ones that are not. That's a great point. When uh, a friend of mine and I flew to uh, the Orlando area in October for the National Business Aviation Association convention, uh, we deliberately employed a, an FBO uh at the airport where we landed uh, because they offered a really good deal on rental cars and because their fuel price was obscenely lower than the other three FBOs on the same field. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking two ninety nine a gallon for Jet A when wow. it was over 5 bucks a gallon just a just half a mile away across the field. Really? Wow. Yeah, so that's good advice. Shop for, shop for cheap fuel. It'll encourage it. I always, you know, when I'm planning across country uh, or planning anything out of the local area, um, always research, you know, what my fuel stops are going to be. What system do you use to sh research? What are there good ones? I use ones? AirNav. AirNav. Um, yeah, it, it it's um, it has you know some some quirks, um, and you're never you know fully guaranteed of the uh, the accuracy of the data. But it's it's the most accurate, it's the most thorough um, resource out there. Now, do you just you look for the low prices, or do you belong to their little club? They, don't they I have don't some? Belong to their little club. Now, there is another there is another service out there. Um, I forget, maybe it's hundredloled.com or something yes, like that. Yes, hundredloled.com, yeah. and that's associated with the, if you have an anywhere map that you can actually uh -huh. use that in the air. Anywhere map being exactly. one of the GPS systems. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. Um, exactly. I've not used that. I don't have an anywhere map rig, uh, anything like that. Um, but I've found that um, uh, regardless of what service you use, whether it's AirNav or HunterLowLead.com or something else, it always behooves you to call. Ahead. Yes. Yes. Thank uh, you. Because there's no requirement that this data be accurate or updated. 
and uh, you might get a pleasant surprise um, right. if you if you call around. Um, but uh, you know, better to be safe than sorry, or, or you know, pop in somewhere expecting you know, buck ninety nine hundred low lead, uh, and to find out not only is the gas price now you know three ninety nine, but there is no one around to pump it, and you don't have gas to go somewhere else, and you're sleeping in the airplane that night. Mm, yeah, I've never had to do that, but uh, um, there there have been times where you know that might have been uh, the outcome. Yeah, I landed someplace one time expecting gas in the middle of the night, and there was no gas, and we were very nearly out of gas too. So yeah, that's a good advice. Good advice. Any other subjects before we wrap this thing up? That's it. Amy, what are you working on these days? What am oh, it's it's best not to talk about how much work. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> um, I I'm working on a couple different different projects. Yeah. I've got some interviewing to do in the next couple of weeks. I have a wonderful uh uh medley piece of the women who work at Cessna Aircraft, which is really exciting. Oh neat. Yeah. Uh, which this is going to be a cover story for Aviation for Women. And I have just um, got all the pieces and parts together to get ready for our conference program for uh, Women in Aviation, which will be February 26th through 28th in Atlanta, Georgia. So that's going to be a blast. And where can people find out? Is there a website where people can learn more about that? Oh, absolutely. WAI.org. And click on the art in the center of the website. It'll take you straight to the uh, conference information. But we've got just some fantastic stuff going on. Astronaut Peg Whitson is going to be there. She's going to be one of our keynote speakers. Um, The governor of Georgia is supposedly coming. Uh, so, you know, it's just a great lineup, a really great lineup of speakers, plus about 40 different educational seminars, all geared towards aviation and when i say aviation i'm talking about any flavor uh from being a manager at an fbo to being a mechanic to a pilot to a student who thinks they want to be an engineer and design boeing jets so uh it's it's a really nice mix a very very nice mix and and i'm i'm quite psyched about it uh we also have taken the tail apart and done the uh service bulletin and noted that there were no cracks which airplane is this the rv10 okay remember we talked uh some time ago actually probably it was uh back in uh may or june about uh the problem that they had identified at the factory only still from my information with the factory demonstrator they had uh, uh, one of the tail uh, bulkhead um, in the monocoque construction had a crack in it. Hmm. And they sent out doublers and basically said, you all need to take it apart and look at this. Now, hmm. so far, no one else has found a crack. So the question become, hmm, is a factory demonstrator just, you know, having a really hard life? Um, does it just well, have more hours on it than all the rest of them? Or is it if there's an airplane in the fleet that you want to have a really hard life, it's a factory demonstrator. That's right. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Right. So that's also a good thing. Uh, no, you know, no arguments with Vans. They backed up the product beautifully. They sent out the doublers. They came up with a solution um, that they feel it was important enough to send that all out to everybody. And uh, it's nice that it's done now. Yeah. Basically, the airplane uh, has about 90 hours on it, and it seemed like the right time 
uh, to, to take it apart and do that. Uh, so probably be writing a little bit about that too. Yeah, and very cool. hopefully, very cool. hopefully flying some neat new airplanes this, uh, this, uh, new year. And I also, I made a pact with myself yeah. after, after American Airlines took two days to get me from Fort Myers to Utah, something I could have done all by myself oh, <laughs> without American Airlines. I know how long it takes. Anyhow, I decided not to dwell on the negative because I just can't stand the taste of bile. <laughs> I think that's the key to flying the airlines. Don't dwell on the negative. Thank well, you, Amy. I, that's, that's great. Yeah, I've decided to take it, take it one step further and say this year is going to be a better year because I am just going to look at the, look at the positives. That's I'm going right. to let, those, let the rest go. of it wash off my back just like a duck. So. That's right. Hey, there David, you. what are you working on these days? Uh, I'm working on a uh, a uh, interview with the uh, incoming or well the new president of uh, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Oh really? Uh, mm-hmm. Something that will be happening here in the next few days. Uh, they already have uh, uh, assured me that we're going to be able to get this done on deadline. And uh, working on a look back piece at uh, the uh, the the trials and tribulations and successes of business aviation in 2008. A uh, little piece on uh, on airliners as business jets, uh, <laughs> which is a you know, which has been a very rapidly expanding arena in yeah. the last ten years, and uh, and a little piece with uh, some uh, aircraft dealers and brokers on what their markets like right now. Mm. Uh, also have a couple of pieces in the works for avionics news, and I believe before the week's out, something for aviation safety. Right, boss? <laughs> something for aviation safety, yes. Speaking of which, uh, Jeb, what are you working on these days? What's going on with you? Uh, some, something for aviation safety. No, um, <clears throat> I, uh, I've been working on a piece that uh, revisits the uh, Brazilian midair we've talked about uh, a couple of episodes ago. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the thrust of the piece is now that the reports are out. Um, you know what's what's in the reports, what's wrong with them, what's what does the NTSB say about the Brazilian report, and uh, what does any of that say about uh, what was going on in the cockpit and uh, the cockpit of the Embraer, I should say. And um, you know where does that where does that kind of leave us? Um, I've been working, uh, uh, looking at uh, another piece um, dealing with um, PLBs, personal locator beacons, mm-hmm. uh, their suitability in the aftermath of uh, the February one oh nine cessation of satellite monitoring for one twenty one point five ELTs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And the website for the magazine is aviationsafetymagazine.com. Cool, cool. I'm I'm like semi on vacation this month, which I wouldn't be my choice necessarily, but uh, I'm out here in California. I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to go to MacWorld Expo and make sure I'm staying up to date on all my Macintosh stuff, and also visit with my friends. I'm hanging out with some pilots out here. That was a lot of fun, and. Uh, over the next, well, in, in about three weeks, I'm going to be in Florida. We're all going to uh, to uh, the Sebring show together. That'll be fun. Don't bring that's cold weather. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Bring, but uh, but in the meantime, bring all the cold weather with you. Bring you can bring you know an overnight you know a little bit of mm, 
you know, chill or something. Oh, believe me, I'm, I have bringing no, my snow, no, I'm bringing my snowshoes. Just I have no warm weather to bring with me. Believe, sorry, I would. No fit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm also going to be working a little bit to try and smooth out some of the rough edges on the Uncontrolled Airspace website. Uh, we've added a bunch of features over the last year that uh, are great, I think, I hope, but uh, but they could stand some some polish and some some smoothing. So we're gonna gonna play around and try and try and you know take the website to the next level, take the podcast to the next level for that matter. But more on that later on. So, uh, by, by the way, I love the uh, intro to 114 uh, yeah. for those of you that uh, you got a chance to listen to it. Isn't pay it great? attention to that. Yes. Uh, that's from I, uh, that's from Royce Earl, who uh, has actually sent us in four, that being the first of four. And, I got uh, carpet burns from his instructions. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to know. Now that was the one for the one that that people have heard last week. The one, this one that we're you're, that that we're doing right now, will have yet another of the four that I got from Royce. I'm I, I'm not sure which one I'm going to put up there just yet. Um, I'll, I'll do that when I do the post production. But uh, listeners already know they're all yelling I've at already their, heard it. Just yeah. just 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 so you know, Royce, I'm doing all those push-ups and stages. One today, <laughs> one tomorrow. One the day after that. Uh, yeah. All right, kids. I'm going to a party, so. Uh, well, uh, that's why we're getting out of here early. That's right. No kidding, man. <laughs> There's beer waiting. I'm, I'm, party Berkeley. Let me think about that. How no, that, what, that? What would be at that party? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm actually jumping on the bridge. I'm going over to the city to meet up with some of the MacWorld gang and uh, and going to start uh, schmoozing and socializing. So, uh, so I got to get out of here. It's it's always great to talk with you guys and uh, <laughs> talk among yourselves. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, right. See you later on. All right, kids. I'm gonna go. You're gonna go. I'll talk to you all later on. All right. Hey, take bye, it folks. easy. All right, bye bye. You got bye bye. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.